Okay, we are recording. Um, I want to begin our series, and as most of you are well aware, we're, we're studying uh, the topic of eschatology and on into the book of the Revelation to John. And I want to start uh, by reading in the next few weeks some of the major presentations of Christ in this this final book of the New Testament. So if you want to follow along, you're welcome to turn to uh, Revelation 1. If not, uh, I'll be reading uh, out loud to us. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place hereafter. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so that is... (coughs) Vision number one, major vision number one of Christ in the book of the Revelation to John. Now, we're going to struggle with this PowerPoint presentation because the lamp's not really bright. But uh, can you read that? Yeah. Okay, good. So this is a study of eschatology, and I'm going to explain and define and, and all of that in just a moment. This is the study of the final events in the canonical drama. And I've mentioned that to you before. Let me go back to it. It's a favorite topic to me of late. The canonical drama would be the drama that starts in Genesis and goes all the way through to Revelation. It includes not only God and man, but also angels. I think there is a triple dimension through this canonical drama and when you hear me say canonical I'm referring to the canon of scripture the accepted books that go in uh, to our uh, collection of inspired works by the Holy Spirit given uh, to to the people of God 
So that's the canonical drama. It's Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, and um, the drama takes us from the person of God in existence forever, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you, Glenn. The uh, creation of all beings, angelic, we believe, first, and then the material beings, the material world, and material beings, mankind, afterwards, the fall of Satan, the fall of man, the story uh, of God then promising a deliverer and uh, tracing the life of man in probably in what we might say to be two different lines, the line of, of Cain, the line of Abel, um, or Seth, it, it becomes Seth, and we have a godly line, an ungodly line, and so forth and so on through the book of Genesis, on into the people of Israel, the sons of Jacob, um, the history of, of Israel, to the story of David, to the prophets, to the New Testament, the Son of God, the Son of David, that comes to earth as Jesus of Nazareth, and his first coming, his story, uh, the early church, and now we await his second coming. And at the second coming, Jesus will deal with Satan, with fallen man, and with man that needs to be reconstituted and, and reformed, and with the people of Israel. So all of this comes back together in the book of Revelation. And we'll get there, but I'm going to push you off for a little while uh, because I want to talk about eschatology. And once we get through eschatology, this is going to sound a lot like a college course for a few weeks. Bear, bear with me. Uh, then we'll get into the inspired text. Not that we won't be looking at texts for the next few weeks, um, but we will get into the inspired text uh, some weeks down the line and try to deal more specifically with the book of Revelation, having laid a, a foundation for it. Okay. Georgina very astutely said, Kent, you're going to have a lot of questions here. <laughs> so what are your expectations? What are you expecting from this study of eschatology and the revelation to John? Talk to me. Talk to each other. What are you looking for? This will help me as I prepare so that I can answer some of uh, those things that you want to see. But I also want to establish and maybe try and bring us together as, as class members in terms of where we're headed for the next five Well, it, may, it won't be five years, but it's going to be a long study. <laughs> okay, so, so what are you hoping for? Anybody want to put words to that? Yes, Fred? I think most of us believe in all of the events that are talked about in the Bible, millennium, the rapture, all of these things, uh, but the question is, what is the time sequence of them, and uh, where do we get, uh, if we have a, uh, a certain time sequence, whether it be premillennial, amillennial, whatever it is, how do we come up with that from prophecy? And, uh, we believe in the events, but it's the timing of the events that is issue with okay okay I've got a chart for that yes yes Kay well it starts out in the very beginning with a blessing for those who 
So obviously it, would, it expects response on our part. What should we do as a result of knowing Revelation? Yes. Bonnie, go ahead. This is very basic, but I, I would really appreciate just getting some interpretation of so much of this. That's the major work that we're going to do. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Yes, Aldridge? A discussion about uh, pre trip, mid trip, post trip. Uh, I think many of us here are in the pre-trip camp, but a discussion of that. Okay, and for, for those of you that are not following his terminology, we will define those, and uh, yes, we'll, we'll have a working knowledge of those various approaches to the study of eschatology. Thank you. Yes? A pulling in of the scriptures throughout the Bible that tie in with the verses. Now we're talking five years, yes. <laughs> yes, and, and I think that as you get into the topic and, and you start, as you continue to read the scriptures, you will see how often uh, the Bible speaks to end time events and, and personages and, and what, what takes place there. Um, right now in my morning devotions, I'm reading Isaiah, and of course, uh, this class has been through Isaiah recently with Dr. Allman. Wow. Um, in, in fact, I was tempted to read part of Isaiah 40 to you this morning because of the things that Isaiah writes there. But yes, okay, so let me. Yes, Kathy. Israel versus church. <laughs> yes. Current world, but that's probably not the best way to say that. Current, current events. events. Current events. events. Thank you. Yes, John. Uh, this kind of relates a little bit to the timing. But is Christ's return imminent, or are there still events that must happen first? Could he come today? I hope so. Yep. Okay, these are great things, and you, other ideas, other concepts will probably come up as we're working through the material. Um, I welcome that. I don't have the answers. I have some answers, and some of you have some answers. Some of or none of us, as you will see on one of the slides, none of us has all of the answers. And so, uh, <clears throat> and the, the scriptures are a divine book. They were written by God to reveal, but 
um, we don't always understand the mind of God. We've been given the Spirit, and the Spirit helps us understand the things of God. But there are some things that are just not quite as clear as we want them to be. <clears throat> okay, so let me give you a preview of, of this study. Number one, we will become acquainted with the various interpretive approaches by Christians to the biblical material regarding the end times, as Aldridge brought up to us. Um, they relate specifically to the, to the millennium, whether there is a millennium, and if so, when Christ returns, before or after, and, and so forth. This material will include some charts and some diagrams. You can go online and find these. Um, number two, uh, we will gain insight into the covenants of God, uh, which he made with the Israelites, what they are, how they serve as the foundation for prophecy and eschatology in the scriptures. Now, as we looked at Samuel, we talked about the Davidic covenant, and that will help us here. We'll, we'll uh, address the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. And all of these covenants become the foundation for our understanding of the events of the end times and what God will be doing as he fulfills those covenants uh, to the people to whom he made those covenants. Comments or questions on these? Okay. We will be awed at the wonder of messianic prophecy. We will be. I hope you are. Um, this is one of the things that I benefited most from in my course of study at, at DTS. Uh, I wrote a paper on the servant songs in Isaiah. I am humbled. I'm humbled by what I see taking place between God and his son as his son agrees to become the suffering servant for mankind. Um, and I don't know how much time Dr. Allman gave to the servant songs uh, wow. So we will be odd, and we will give due attention to his unique person. Uh, number four, we will propose a working relationship between the Testaments, new and old. And you, you may be thinking, well, I have a pretty good idea how they relate, or is that even an issue? Um, do we need to relate the Old Testament to the New Testament? I think we do, and I think it's a very intriguing part of biblical study and scholarship. Number five, we will propose a normal interpretation of the revelation to John, which welcomes this book as the final, clarifying, consummative word on canonical prophecy. So that tips my, my hand to you in terms of where I think we will be going with the book of Revelation. I see it as uh, the, the ultimate in biblical revelation regarding not only the person of Christ, but how the person of Christ will bring this world back to the glory of God. And it was lost when Satan defected and his angels and when man fell. And people and angels have withheld their proper allegiance and glory to God for all of these thousands of years. Jesus will bring it back together. And uh, God will get the glory he deserves, uh, whether through faith and obedience or punishment uh, and separation from those who are unwilling to
to give him his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So these are, uh, eschatos is a Greek word. It's an adjective, eschatos, eschate, eschaton. Those are endings that go on it, uh, masculine, feminine, neuter. And it often uh, is translated as last or final and and appears frequently opposite of protos, which is first in Greek. So you've got the first and the last. And eschatos uh, would be uh, a nice comparative word to the other. Sometimes it's used of place. So eschatos meaning the furthest place. Sometimes it's used of time. So it would be the latest or the last. Sometimes it's used of rank. So it would be the lowest or the least important. Sometimes it's used of a series. So it would be the final in a series of things that take place. I've starred um, points two and four because I think that's how the uh, how theologians uh, use this term as they refer it to eschatology. Now, let me get to the, the next word. So logos is the Greek word for word or statement or a subject under discussion. And so we have theology, God and logos, theos and logos, God and logos. So it's the study. God is the subject under study. That's theology. Eschatology, we have the end times or the last things under study. So that's eschatology. So we, it's just a compound word. That's how we get um, uh, that division of theology. Pneumatology, the study of the spirit. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Hamartiology, the study of sin. Anthropology, the study of man. Okay. So all of those things, um, they're just combination or compound words. So I get kind of muddled in all of the words I put in the middle paragraph there, but simply put, eschatology is the study of the end times as revealed in the Bible. That's what we're talking about. Question or comment? Okay. Let's talk about prophecy for a few slides here. Prophecy is concerned with things to come and should contemplate all that was future in character at the time its revelation was given. Now, Dr. Schaefer, who was the founder of, of DTS, uh, was Presbyterian and a musician and a conservative evangelical. And um, God led him to begin this uh, evangelical uh, school in Dallas in 1924 um, and that's, that evangelical school became Dallas Theological Seminary. He was the first president. So I, I'm citing him as he talks about prophecy. Supernatural or biblical prophecy includes all prophetic statements made by God or his spokesman, both those that have been fulfilled and those yet to be fulfilled. Now, Schaefer is helping us understand that prophecy is future-oriented. So we, we don't say history is prophecy unless somebody before the history took place predicted it. Then it becomes prophecy. Okay? 
That's not very profound, but you know, it's basic, and we probably ought to say something like that. It is true that in order to have a real, prof a, a real prophecy, certain conditions must be verified regarding both prediction and fulfillment. The prediction must precede the event in time. It must be intelligible and definite in terms and foretell something which at the time of its utterance lay beyond the ability of merely human sagacity to foresee, says Moss. Um, and look at when he wrote back in the 1800s. Wow. Um, as I was researching for my dissertation, I came across some rich, rich materials um, written 150 years ago. Uh, what a delight uh, to encounter those things. So prediction has to precede what it's talking about. And it has to be intelligible. We have to have enough specifics to know whether or not it's ever fulfilled. As to the fulfillment, it must be historically a historically certain event, undoubtedly posterior to the prediction and accurately correspond with it in terms. It must also be above the suspicion of having been brought about by human means for the purpose of forming an apparent accomplishment of the prediction. Now, okay, this is an aside from what we're doing here, but it's, it's relevant. Was there a, an event in the life of Christ that he manipulated to fulfill an Old Testament prediction? Think about that. Yes, okay, Glenn's hand goes right up. Yes, Kay's hand goes up. Glenn? Uh, he arranged to have a cult. Okay. Okay, were you thinking that? Okay, John, so probably, you know, and, and people have leveled that accusation against the, the gospel writers saying, well, Jesus is just manipulating history here, and he's trying to show himself to be the Messiah. And this would... This would come from the voice of skeptics, okay, who do not believe uh, Christ to be divine and the Messiah necessarily, nor would they believe the scriptures to be inspired in the word of God. And so they're saying, well, look, he just, you know, he told the disciples what to do. Um, you know, um, he instigated the whole process. Yes? Yes? Go ahead. Not only does uh, history confirm prophecy, but prophecy explains history. Okay. You're, you're, uh, can, you, can you go a little further with me? Well, in, in prophecy, it not only uh, tells you of events, but it it includes in that that they are, you know, uh, the purpose. Okay, so some, okay, so something of the reason why yes. they're being predicted, and then when they take place, yes. what they mean. Thank you, thank you. Sometimes I'm a little slow on the uptake. Well, what's wrong with Jesus doing what he knew was going to happen? There, nothing's wrong as long as his motives are right and, and correct. Now, and some of those, some of the skeptics would say he even engineered his own death. Well, obviously he did not. I mean, who would? I don't know. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, 
but but there have there have been accusations like that uh, about the life of Christ. Okay, let me give you a, a question. Does disagreement among biblical scholars occur more often in the field of eschatology than other fields? What do you think? We probably we probably would nod our heads north and south here or up and down, right? Okay, yeah, because we're so aware of the divergences in approaches to eschatology and to the Book of Revelation, and you know, is it spiritual? Is it literal? Um, what about all those figures and all all of the images? And are they real? Or you know, what what's going on there? So. Um, so we would probably shake our heads that way. Well, let me, let's follow it up. When disagreement arises, should such doctrine be relegated to inactivity? Okay, well, because everybody disagrees, let's not talk about it. No, no. And that's why I think you've asked for this particular topic. You want to study it. You want uh, someone to talk about it, and you want to interact over it. So, uh, you know, uh, Schaefer is going to disagree with us, though. Look at this. The plea that the prophetic portions of the Bible present problems over which men disagree is not a worthy release from its claims. There are no more problems in eschatology, he says, than in soteriology, the study of the salvation of man. Disagreements as divergent as Calvinism and Arminianism have never been urged as a reason for the neglect of the study of salvation, the salvation of man, soteriology, just because we've got Calvinists and Arminians and people in between doesn't mean we don't talk about what God has done in terms of providing salvation for us. But disunity of the slightest degree, says Schaefer, among teachers respecting eschatology has been seized on as a reason for its neglect. Well, yeah, and sometimes sometimes we just say, okay, let's not talk about it because we disagree. Yes, and, and there will always be people with a different per perspective than what we have. And I want you to know, you don't have to agree with me or anybody else in the class to study this material. If, in fact, if you disagree, please come and study. And I'm gonna, I'll, I'll make a plea for that in just a moment. Disagreement makes it worthy of study. Amen, yeah. amen, and it sharpens us, doesn't it? Yeah. It helps us to appreciate um, Okay, uh, listen to this and see if you agree or disagree with what Schaefer says. What is declared in the scriptures respecting prophecy is as credible as those portions which are historical. Well, we would say, yes, amen, brother, go on, right on, brother, yes. Um, the language is not more complex, nor is the truth any more veiled. Well, wait a minute. Um <clears throat> Just the use of figurative language for some of us creates problems. And the fact that we're talking, as, as Kay has brought up, about future things that haven't happened yet, that makes it somewhat more veiled. Rather than the scripture writing about David or Abraham or Daniel, um, there's, there doesn't seem to be as, uh, as much a level of veiling uh, as with future things. But, but Schaefer's welcome to his perspective here. 
Um, it is recognized that it is a greater strain upon a feeble faith to believe and receive that which is mere prediction, especially so when the unprecedented, uh, when unprecedented events are anticipated, than to believe and receive as true what is assuredly taken place. So he's making a point. We may not agree with him completely in every aspect of his point, but I think his point is made. All parts of the Bible have a sanctifying effect. Mm. Mm -hmm. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable, as as, uh, Jonathan Murphy reminded us today. As Jesus says in John 17, 17, your word is truth. But none more than the realization of the fact that Christ may, as promised, return at any time. Who talked about imminency? Yes. Such expectation becomes a purifying hope. And that's what John says in his first letter. Okay, let's, let's get to an application. Take a break from the classroom and just apply this for a moment. May I suggest that we approach this study with a view to persistent sanctification. In other words, prophecy, especially messianic prophecy, ought to take us to God. It ought to take us to our spiritual lives. It ought to take us to hope. And when we have hope, we live like Jesus. You know, we become transformed because what he does is our hope. Should we not live with utmost allegiance to our Savior, whose return we await? Well, yes, we should, most definitely. And what did Jesus say? Watch! Watch, he said. We should eschew selfish wrongdoing and pettiness and give attention to those things that are substantive and eternal. Prophecy has, a, has that special ability to kind of keep us on our spiritual toes and to clarify, to kind of cleanse our minds and say, okay, well, I'm living in 2021, but when Jesus comes back, uh, they may start the calendar over again. I don't know what they're going to do, but it's going to be a new era. And I want to be ready. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So here's a plea for respect among differing theological positions. You and I may come from different traditions in the interpretation of biblical prophecy. Perhaps you have followed or are currently following, reading, listening to a particular theologian whom... uh, Uh, I I have an extra word in there, whom God has used to assist you significantly, stimulating and encouraging your spiritual life. Uh, Fred and I talked about R.C. Sproul a few weeks ago. Uh, R.C. Sproul is of a different tradition than the tradition I'm going to share with you. Great guy. Uh, Far better scholar than I am, and probably most of us. Uh, Learned man. In fact, I'm reading a book by Sproul right now. Uh, about uh, uh, philosophy. Okay, now, do I agree with him eschatologically? No. Do I discount him and dismiss him? Definitely not. I can learn from him. 
Okay. Yes. Yes. Right. To say at this point, for many of us, um, 50 years ago, we read a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. (laughs) And and so that became, and we were in our 20s, and probably was our first time to deal with this. And so that became the baseline. It was uh, related in some way to Dallas Seminary. And in this part of the country, that sort of became our baseline for studying this. And we tend to look at everything with respect to what Hal Lindsey had to say. And that, that's what I'm sort of battling against, the temptation of doing that. Okay, and thank you, Fred. Um, l- let me say, uh, give a caveat here. Dallas Theological Seminary is not right in everything it says and does and teaches. I hesitate because I'm on recording. So, uh, <laughs> we we must not give a person or a theological school or even a tradition of interpretation the final authoritative word on God's word. God's word trumps anything. God's word always trumps the teachings of men and the collections of men and how men put together their understanding of the scripture. They may, they may be mostly right and others may be more wrong, but just because it comes from Chafer or Walverd or Pentecost or Toussaint or Hendricks, uh, these are all professors from DTS, um, does not necessarily mean it's right. Could well be. Um, but we have much to learn from, from others, and our bottom line for authority is always the scriptures. Now, what we are talking about in, is the interpretation of those scriptures and then the formulation of those interpretations to a systematic theology of eschatology. Uh, so, yes, uh, we, we have to give grace, and I plead with you for that kind of grace. If my methodology runs contrary to what you've heard before, please don't take offense. I'm not trying to offend anybody because I have a different perspective. I will hold to my convictions, but I, w- I respect you to hold to your re- convictions. Yes. In that respect, um, like for instance, just as an example, this pre-trib and post-trib and all this stuff, we don't know. We really don't. I know we. This particular church stands for pre-trib. I came from a church that was post-trib. To me, it doesn't matter because we don't really know the answers to those things. Even though our interpretation depends on who you're listening to, but to me, it doesn't matter. Okay. As far as the end of it, because it comes from here, right? Okay. Linda, I'm going to be as careful as I can as I respond to you. (laughs) I I believe it matters, but ultimately we won't know the right interpretation until it happens. If Christ comes back at the beginning of the tribulation, then all the pre-tribbers are going to be right, but all of the post-tribbers are still going up with the pre-tribbers. Okay? I'm not saying it doesn't matter as far as how we believe, but I just mean it doesn't matter in the end because God's 
in control anyway. Right. Pastor, right. I hope the free trippers are right. <laughs> <laughs> and I happen to agree with that, by the way. <laughs> okay. So uh, that's a very practical application. Yes, Jim. I wanted to thank you for that statement. Uh, I think that there is some analogy. I can't explain in my own words what it is effectively, but there is some analogy with first century Jewish true believers, Messianic expectation, and our anticipation of the Messiah's return, and that there's things that set a pattern, but there are many things that are still mysterious and hidden. And for instance, they didn't know. They only learned who Jesus was the Messiah through his life and death and ultimately resurrection. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, it was contemporaneous, but also after the fact. Even at, in Acts, the disciples of that moment are going, okay, let's now everything get over. We get through kingdom today. So even at that moment, they were expecting their own expectations about things. So I think that uh, suggests to us that we ought to be somewhat modest about some things, Revelation and the future, or similar to that. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try and summarize what you've said briefly here, just for the sake of the recording. Um, so Jim is observing that even way back to the first century, people expected Christ to come back. And they asked him, in, as recorded in Acts 1, is it now you're going to bring in the kingdom? Okay, So they expected it then. Uh, we have that same expectation in our generation. Um, and I, I, I'm hearing from a number of you saying that as you're listening to people who are talking about current day events, uh, things look very um, ready for Christ to come back. What, what I would say in terms of imminency is that Christ, uh, Christ's imminent return was just as likely in 1947 before Israel was made a nation as it is now in 48 or thereafter when Israel was granted its homeland. In other words, the imminency of Christ's return has, is always true. What we see happening in world events today uh, excite us and give us uh, a, a measure of, of expectation that, wow, it could be. My dad went to his grave thinking the Lord Jesus would come in his lifetime. He, he didn't. Dad died in 2000. And that's, and that's okay. That's okay for us to be expectant. We want to be expectant. Um, okay, we'll, we'll probably talk more about that. Um, all right. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of different traditions. Are we ready? Let's get into the fray here. Covenant theology and dispensationalism. Now, again, let us remember that covenant theologians and dispensationalists are all brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. We disagree on an interpretive approach to the scriptures. And because our interpretive approach is different, we will come up with, with different conclusions, different systematized understandings of 
how the world's going to come to its end. But they're still brothers and we're still brothers, okay? And we, we just come at them, uh, come at the issues differently. And there are good reasons for the way people interpret the scriptures. Now, they may have a faulty foundation or, or whatever, but there are good reasons why people take the scriptures the way they take them. We have to grant to one another uh, the way God has worked in our lives. And uh, sometimes God allows even wrong things or even wrong teachers to highly impact us in one area of our Christian lives, even though they, you know, they're wrong in another area, but in this area, God uses, God uses them significantly for us. So we are discerning. We need to develop discernment. And uh, your favorite Bible teacher may, may be uh, uh, the right source for understanding this particular biblical uh, text or that particular topic, but maybe not that other topic. And you'll want to develop some discernment. That, that's okay. That's, that's, we're mature adults here, and I think we can, we can handle that. Okay. Did I skip a slide? No, okay. The scriptural doctrine of the covenant of grace. So covenant theology um, postulates two or three covenants that are not specifically named in the scripture, but they feel like the scriptures allude to the workings of these covenants between God and, and people. One such covenant is the, called the covenant of grace summarized in the Westminster Confession. Now, the Westminster Confession, um, and look at the bottom part of the slide, was drawn up in the 1600s in Westminster to settle conflicts between the English Puritans and the Scottish Anglicans, Anglicans. Over the creeds of the Anglican Church, this confession was adopted by the Presbyterian churches, and it's been a long-standing statement of Presbyterian faith. There are great things in the Westminster Confession. Great, great things. Some of us may not agree with them on this particular section and their supposed understanding of a covenant of grace or a covenant of works, a covenant of redemption. Um, we may not see those things in the scriptures like they do. That's okay. Um, much of the Westminster Confession is very, very worthy of our allegiance and, and um, our understanding. Okay, so in this uh, supposed covenant, God having out of his mere good pleasure, this is so well written, from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, he entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. So um, these Anglicans are postulating that God entered into a covenant uh, to bring salvation to people. Now, <clears throat> the secret is, why are they not talking about 
the servant songs of Isaiah. It's there. The covenant theologians ought to go to Isaiah. It's there. They don't cite the the servant songs of Isaiah. Okay, that's an aside. Uh, They've got plenty of ammunition if they want to go to the servant songs, but I don't know that they ever cite the servant songs of Isaiah because God does talk to his servant, his son, and his son accepts the mission. Wow. Okay. That the covenant of grace is a covenant between the Father and the Son for our salvation is abundantly clear in numerous scriptures. And so he's, uh, the Westminster Confession cites Ephesians 1, 2 Timothy 1. We have a sovereign God and we preach his sovereign grace. Our sovereign God is not a fickle, changeable, or inconsistent uh, nature. He has revealed himself as the covenant-keeping God. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. When we preach the gospel, offering salvation to everyone who will believe, we are not preaching the merely whimsical amnesty of a changeable potentate, but we are preaching the sovereign grace of God who changes not. We are proclaiming his promises, his covenant, and this covenant is sealed by the blood of of Calvary's cross. And this comes right out of Buswell, a systematic theology, um, speaking about this supposed covenant of grace. And so we can, as brothers and sisters in the faith, we can say, go on, brother, uh, preach it. Yes, that's what God did. Now, wait, 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 wait. I don't know that, that we actually see God making a covenant of grace, but I sure like the concept. And and Christ did fulfill it. Okay, so we can appreciate where they're going. Their heart's right. Um, their interpretation or their supposition, their um, amalgamation of the scriptures, bringing them together to formulate this doctrine may be suspect. Maybe, for those of you that are on the covenant theologian side, don't throw tomatoes. Okay, Um, but we agree that, that the soteriological work of God for man is a major undertaking, and it's written throughout the scriptures. Praise God for that, huh? Okay. They also postulate a covenant of works, and this comes from another section, Uh, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Well, I would certainly agree with everything there except the last phrase. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. No, 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 no. I don't think so. I don't think God's blessedness or his uh, grace to man has ever been conditioned upon obedience. It's always been conditioned upon faith by grace. But 
okay, they, they're looking at it this way. So, so they're saying there's this covenant of works, and God is willing to give people salvation if they'll obey him. Nobody obeys him, so, so we need a covenant of grace. And in order um, to provide for the covenant of grace, we need a covenant of redemption. So here's the covenant of grace part. Man, by his fall, having made himself uncapable of life that is coven- uh, by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in the scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it, thereupon bequeathed. Okay, so the language is Old English, okay, written in the 1600s, but we're following, aren't we? This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel under the law. It was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. All of these things for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit. This is good theology. It just goes on and on and on. We're never going to get to the end of this sentence. It feels that way, doesn't it? Through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is called the Old Testament. Hang with me. Um, Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Okay, let's let's make that more simple, okay? Covenant theology is a system of interpretation that centers on the so-called covenant of grace, a supposed arrangement between God and the elect sinner in which God provides grace for salvation. Now, you know, one of the questions could could easily just be, do we need a covenant? Does God need to have a covenant with sinners in order to decide to rescue them? Well, not necessarily. Does he do that? Most definitely. Maybe it's his love. You know, we go to his love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, But these good folks are postulating a covenant. And that's that's okay. We'll let them have that, that freedom. Okay? The major tenets of covenant theology are the church consists of God's redeemed people of all ages, 
not just those in the present age. So we, we have on our board the distinction perhaps of Israel and church, or what is the relationship between them? So these folks are combining the identities, at least to some extent, of, of Old Testament Israel and New Testament church. Number two, the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenants are fulfilled in the present age. Well, I disagree with that, but they see them as being fulfilled in the present age, in the church, that the church is enjoying um, the fulfillment of those covenants. And then number three, the purpose of God's program is soteriological. It's about the salvation of man for the purpose of bringing people to salvation. And you see I'm citing Roy Zuck, who was another uh, professor at DTS. Okay, now let's contrast that. Well, no, we're not going to contrast that. We're going to leave it there. We'll, we'll pick this contrast up <laughs> next week, and, and we'll go further. Um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for the opportunity uh, to study your word and to study and, and understand how uh, knowledgeable people have understood your word and how that helps us. Uh, these, these men uh, who have written and whose works we are citing uh, have spent long hours and they have trusted your spirit for guidance and insight. And they have done their best work in presenting for us, their readers, uh, their understanding of eschatology. Help us to appreciate that. And we may have a little different perspective than some. We probably will not agree with, with anyone in every aspect, but we can appreciate your work that you've done in their lives and the rich heritage we have uh, from these uh, brothers uh, of the faith who have helped us better understand your word. Lord, we admit that um, we are finite. Your word is infinite. It partakes of your character. And we need your spirit to, to understand. And as we have begun this series today, uh, we ask that not only would you help us know and ascertain and understand, but Lord, sanctify us. Give us a living hope a hope that uh, purifies our motives, that challenges us in some of the pettiness of life and uh, redirect us to those bigger, bigger events that are yet to take place. We ask it in Jesus' name, who will come again. Amen.